Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Is there anything we need to address or cover in terms of technique or philosophy or comfort? Anything that kept you up last night? about this afternoon was this term dukkha. Mm-hmm. And so I think maybe in starting to speak about it a little bit we can address some of the things you're saying. Okay. And not to forget that one of the stories we were exploring yesterday was this vision that the Buddha had, well that Gotama had, um, when he was with his charioteer the evening that he left his palace. <coughs> and um, he sees an old person and a sick person and a corpse. And it creates in him deep bewilderment. And the first comment he has is, is this going to happen to me? 
And of course, it's easy to see impermanence, but it's a whole other thing to feel it in your own body and in your own heart. Um, Of course, the teachings of yoga and the teachings of Buddhism share completely this notion that our lives are often characterized by dukkha. And there are different ways of translating dukkha. It's almost always translated as suffering. Um, One of the ways I like translating dukkha is as unsatisfaction. Um, And the sense that we have a lot of the time of being unsatisfied and all of the different ways that we respond to feeling unsatisfied, especially in a materialistic culture, create all kinds of symptoms. And those symptoms uh, range uh, from individual symptoms, like the common ones we all know, shopping, Um, and so on, all the way to cultural symptoms. And I think that we're a culture that really is experiencing a lot of pain. And we don't know how to work with that pain, so it turns into um, suffering. We're a culture that doesn't really know how to deal with impermanence, uh, especially impermanent nature of our personality. And um, so we're a culture that values notoriety and persona as a defense, collective defense system. We're a culture that's really not very good at dealing with aging. And so we respond in all (coughs) kinds of ways. Um, Sometimes to get to Ireland's grandfather's house, we have to take Davenport. And so on Davenport, there's a big store called the anti-aging shop. <laughs> Do you know this story? And so Michelle and Arlen and I are always coming up with ways of vandalizing <laughs> the sign, like changing letters around at night, just to like do an action, a spiritual action. <laughs> yeah. Um, So it's important to remember that dukkha is not just individual, it's cultural, it's collective. And I think sometimes we're so focused on our individual sense of dukkha, our individual sense of unsatisfaction. We're trying so hard to work with our greed and our ill will and our delusions that we forget that we're also in a culture of dukkha with all of those symptoms and all of those root causes. So you can work on your own Greed, and then you can unconsciously um, participate in a culture that is then promoting the same greed. And so it's important to see that our <coughs> patterns of dukkha are not just I, me, and mine. Right? They're inherent in all the elements of our day-to-day existence. And One of the translations of dukkha that I like to, uh, or that most resonates with me, is translating dukkha as a lack, a sense of lack. For me, that captures how I experience unsatisfaction 
is a sense that somewhere in the core of me, something is lacking, something is missing. And I don't actually want to go into that feeling of lack. So I try, and this is the second noble truth, but I try to fill it up. I try to fill it up. Which then just increases the lack. And the most dominant ways culturally that we try and fill our lack, um, the first would be capitalism. This idea that if we just accumulate enough capital, that somehow it's going to secure some permanence for me. And you're going to hear this in the next few months as we come into RRSP season. (laughs) And of course, you know, I'm not an economic historian, but of course, increasing one's capital once served a collective purpose. But it does not anymore. We accumulate capital out of the fear that we're not going to have enough. And we're living right now in a time where the language we use to talk about this is by is the language of poverty, that we have a global poverty problem. But we don't actually have a problem with poverty. We have a wealth problem. But we don't ever want to speak in that kind of language because then you would start to have to talk about greed. And, you'd, and because of that, you'd have to talk about restraint. And then you'd be talking about the yamas. And then that would be yoga. And that would be bad for business. Bad for our cultural samskaras. Um, the point here, though, is in terms of trying to fill up the lack with capital, you can't ever fill it. So you get your eighth house, you renovate your kitchen for the seventh time, and it's still just a kitchen. You finally get that car you wanted, but it's just metal with wheels and transportation. Or maybe there's other things you're going after. Maybe you're going after notoriety, Maybe you're going after um, a certain fixed persona for your career. Or maybe you're going after a lover that's going to take away the sense of lack that you feel. And haven't you all felt that sense of loneliness that drives you out of the house to the theater to watch the best Hollywood love story only to fall for it and then go out and want that to take away the lack and it works for a few months but two things number one nothing outside of you can fill the lack (laughs) and second every attempt that you make to fill the lack increases the suffering. It actually increases the lack. Kosu. What about pursuing spiritual practices as a way of filling that need? Sure, yeah. Of course. That is a still kind of, um, it can be kind of materialism. It can be, of course. But it can also satisfy a deeper yearning, too. Yes. 
And I, and I think that's one of the reasons why, well, it's debatable in traditions how they've done this because it manifests differently in different cultures. But one of the things we've been exploring together and separately in different times we've all studied together is just really trying to, to cut away some of the cultural and metaphysical trappings that these teachings have found themselves in. So what that does is not just create a kind of postmodern sensibility, but it also doesn't allow you to use the form materialistically. Because some part of us just wants some truths laid out that we can rely on. And so we create these metaphysical stories, these, these, these um, belief systems that are kind of like giant umbrellas that just create a canopy over our lives to kind of organize them and make sense as if there could be one final frame of reference But if everything is inherently interdependent, contingent, provisional, and permanent, and empty of substantiality, then so is the tradition, so are the teachings. And so that's why we're constantly paying attention to this relationship between form and no form because we have to, so that we can start to see where maybe there are some parts of the form we want to cling to, and to start to see through that a little bit. And the kicker is that dukkha is self-created. That you are creating your own suffering. You are creating your own suffering. So the body is aging. You start experiencing sensations that are not pleasurable. And then immediately there's aversion, devesha, to those sensations, which creates avidya, the inability to be with them as they are, which then creates asmita, the stories of I, me, and mine, which then give rise to abhinivesha, the fear of death, the fear of the death of the me story, the I system. So that in the next moment that you feel that same feeling in the body, you're going to do exactly the same thing. And you're going to plant that seed over and over, which reinforces these deep habits in the mind-body process called samskaras. And this is the wheel of dukkha. And you've done that by what you've done, by how you've picked up the dukkha. And then you've obscured your true nature which is inseparable from aging.
One of the best definitions of dukkha is actually a beautiful story, a Chinese story from the uh, Tang period, where um, uh, a woman is uh, traveling up uh, along a ridge of a mountain, and uh, the ridge has some pretty steep parts, and she's really working hard. She's coming basically to the end of her energy for that day. And just passing her back and forth, all these other elderly women carrying, has anybody here ever been to China? (laughs) Carrying these huge, huge uh, loads in all these creative ways, balancing them on their head and their shoulders. And just passing back and forth with great enthusiasm. And finally, um, she... uh, There's actually a couple different versions of the story. In one version of the story, this isn't just a woman. It's actually a woman who's been doing 12 years of practice in a monastery. And the reason why she's walking on this ridge is because she's lost um, her uh, faith in the form. She doesn't know if the monastery is actually going to secure her any kind of enlightenment. So the head abbess tells her to just go and do a retreat up in the mountains, solo, until she understands why the form is important. In either version of the story, she's walking along the ridge, and then she sees um, a former uh, student, a former monk, walking down. This woman has so many loads, more than anyone else, and tremendous amount of energy. And she's coming down the path, very, very steep path, at quite a rate. And then uh, this woman stops her and says, oh, you know, you've got such a huge load. And of course, she's not carrying anything. You've got such a huge load, and uh, you must be practicing and getting energy from the practice. And I don't know what the practice is anymore, and I don't know what point, you know, what, what's the point of all this? And, and what's my true nature? And what's the end of suffering? What does that look like? <laughs> you ever felt this one? <laughs> and then the last thing she says is, what's my true nature? And so the elderly woman who she's run into who's carrying this massive load just puts the load down. <laughs> I love this story. So the end of dukkha is just this, right? Just put the love down. There's a great Theravadan story which is like this too, which is um, how heavy is a mountain? And the answer is a mountain is only heavy if you have to pick it up. And these are creative ways to cut through your notion that suffering is something that's happening to you because of the government, because of your parents, because of your lover or your kids or the jail cell or the institution or whatever. And that's why when you're sitting 
in meditation practice, we're saying, you know, don't lean against the wall. Learn how to not lean on anything. Find the resources in yourself so that you can start to acknowledge how you're creating your own dukkha. And then to watch, and this is the truth, isn't it? To, to watch your resistance to that. To watch your resistance. Like it's so much easier to blame your sibling. So you have to swallow that blame. It's a wonderful story, yeah. another monastic story, where one of the students is also the head cook of the monastery, and he has to uh, make a meal every day for the monastery. And he's in there <coughs> slaving away, you know, with the kitchen staff. And uh, he's not really paying attention this one day. And a snake comes up the back of the stove and hops into the soup and gets fried, <laughs> gets cooked in the soup. And the, 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 the monk who's cooking doesn't even notice this. And so when he brings the soup out, obviously the teacher is the first person who has served the soup. And he takes the ladle and, and, and he pours the soup. And, um, you know, he doesn't see but a little piece of fish, I mean a little fish, a little piece of uh, snake tail goes into the soup. And his teacher takes a bite and then blows it out. And uh, the snake, a little piece of snake, goes right across the table. And as it's flying across the table, the student grabs it and puts it in his mouth and eats it. (laughs) That's the story. And the title of the story is called Eating the Blame. Eating the Blame. Immediately, everybody knows what happened. So what's he going to say? Oh, someone didn't lock the door of the kitchen. Someone else didn't watch over the soup. Nothing. He takes it and he swallows it. And he eats the blame. No dukkha. No lack. And then what happens when we eat our projection is that intimacy occurs. Because suddenly we're with the experience without raga and dvesha, without attachment and aversion. We're just with what's happening. And not to think that that's passive. Being with what's happening is not passivity. It's real deep engagement, not turning away. It's bearing witness, it's being present with, it's engaging with what's happening without self-image. And self-image is always created by attachment and aversion. If there's no attachment and no aversion, There's no self-image. 
your stories about yourself are all conditional. They're all contingent on either attachment or aversion. So easy to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or to write down in our journals. <laughs> Attachment, <laughs> aversion, suffering. <laughs> 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 we can write over and over and over. Because we have to remember that in the meditative state where one achieves some insight, Mm -hmm. it's a state where you're sitting still and you're having some experience. But insight is not not, um, as significant as wisdom. Mm And wisdom only occurs when you take your insight and you put it to work. And because we're human, and I was saying this yesterday, you know, we're not trees, we're human. And so one of the ways we live as humans is through interaction. And so your insight has to be put to work in your community, which is everything, including architecture, including bees, grass, rivers, until you start to see that the Don River is actually your own body. You're 80% water? I don't know what the figure is these days. It's changing all the time. Yeah. So, like, eventually, that Don River is in your body in your body. And so, there's no separation there. And for somebody who's not attached to self-image, then it's not just that I am the river. Okay, that's like the first level. It's that the river is a mess. And so, we've got to do something about it. Because that's my body. That, that river is my body. And I can't have this body without that river. They're interdependent. And so we have to do something about it. So what are you going to do? And that's why I was saying the yamas are not just rules to tell you what to do. Although sometimes they should be talked about in that way. It's very helpful. 
especially in community. (laughs) But the yamas are also seen from the other side as just expressions of what happens when you see interdependence, when you feel interdependence, when you are interdependence, then you are nonviolence. You are honesty. You don't do honesty. You are honesty. You are peace. You don't practice peace. You are peace. So, to really understand the way that the practice and the recognition of dukkha leads to action, leads to karma. You see, when the Buddha was enlightened, when he looked at the morning star and he saw how he created his own dukkha, um, after he had that experience, which was, was impermanent, he, he started to question, what, uh, what do I do with this? What am I going to do with this? Because in the state of samadhi, there's no karma. And so he wasn't operating with sentient life. He's outside of that. Just like the monk who gets measured at MIT and, you know, their brain's not producing any new grooves. Okay, well, great. Mm -hmm. It's very helpful, but it's not enough. And it took many weeks for the Buddha to realize that I've got to do something with this. And then... He's the Buddha. Before he's Shakyamuni with some experience, enlightened experience. But he's not putting it to work yet, and he has this feeling still, even after this episode of waking up, he has this feeling that something's missing. So it's a very important part of the story. Do you have the samadhi experience, but something is missing? What's missing? And then he goes back to the city and he finds the last students that he was spending time with. And then he teaches Four Noble Truths. The first one is that life is characterized by a pervasive sense of lack. That is everywhere. Okay. Words, words, words. So, we're going to do a little partner exercise. Um, I want you to get a partner, find a partner, um, and if there has to, uh, so, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. So three people can go together. And maybe can you choose someone who you haven't been a partner with yet? Um, haven't, or maybe haven't spoke to as much. Uh, so what I'd like you to do is um, just talk together uh, one at a time um, and just tell the other person 
uh, where in your life there is some conflict that is kind of coloring your mood. Just pick one. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. I don't have to give you any more detail. Just whatever the most significant place of conflict is, and you know, maybe it's been happening for the past couple of days. Maybe it's been around for a few weeks. Maybe it's like a few years old now. But for all of us, there's usually a few large places of discord or tension. And so what is that conflict? Maybe it's inside of you. Maybe it's with the person closest to you. Probably with the person closest to you. Um, And just to tell them about it, just briefly, like two minutes each person. Okay. Mm -hmm.